Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply we were about to give up. You know, it went like we anticipated skateboarding coming back into fashion on some level, but it took a few years longer than we anticipated. And there were a couple of times where we're like, maybe this isn't, you know, maybe this isn't, isn't going to work. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Today, producer Jason and I are interviewing the legendary Tony Hawk, pro skater and business mogul. You'll be into this episode if you wanna learn why taking risk is important for the sake of progress, why you can't be afraid to slam and get right back up again, and why your personal brand and being real are something that we need to be and something that we need to protect at all costs. So enjoy this one with Tony Hawk. And by the way, if you're new to the show, we'd love to send you some of the top episodes and the AOC Toolbox, where we discuss concepts like body language, nonverbal communication, persuasion, negotiation, networking, mentorship, and everything else that we teach here at The Art of Charm. If you're in the USA, you can text CHARMED to 33444, that's C-H-A-R-M-E-D to 33444. Everywhere else, go to theartofcharm.com. Also at theartofcharm.com slash podcast, you can find the full show notes for this and all previous episodes of the show. All right, here's Tony Hawk. I read the book about how did I get here. Jason, who's my producer, who's also on the line, has followed you for how long, Jason? Like a long time. I think, Tony, you signed my first shirt at the first Trashmore contest in 85. Oh, awesome. Yeah, nice. Yeah. And um, I also watched Bones Brigade. And the Bones Brigade video led me to ask just why skating in the first place? Because in the Bones Brigade video, it starts off with this, uh, pardon me, but like a freak show of guys, right, that we now think are awesome. But they're all talking about how outcast they were as kids. So how did you even get interested in something like this? How did you get into something that, that was just like kind of this underground, nobody's doing it type of thing. It, it doesn't almost doesn't make sense. Uh, well, I picked up skating when at the tail end of its first boom in the 70s. So in my eyes, it was popular. You know, my my older brother was doing it. A lot of my friends in the in the neighborhood were doing it. And so I did it more based on that's that was the trend. And then when I when I discovered the possibilities or when I saw the possibilities, I think it was the first time I went to the skate park. And I literally saw people flying out of empty swimming pools. And that was my wow moment that I want to learn how to do that. I want to, I want to learn how to fly. And it spoke to, I mean, I would probably be diagnosed with ADD or something nowadays, but it spoke to my, <clears throat> sorry, my instant excitement, gratification, like, you know, the, the type of, it was, it was daredevil. I was, I was, I don't know if I was considered a daredevil, but I didn't, you know, I wasn't really afraid to try new things and 
learn flips and things like that as, as a young child. And it se- there was like a danger factor. There was this edgy factor. And I just devoted myself to it. Around that same time, my friends quit. All my peers, my, my classmates, they grew out of it. They, you know, it was, it was a trend and they were over it and they moved on to the next thing. And I couldn't give it up because I felt like it was finally something that I kept improving at that I had a feeling of self-confidence that I had never found in any other sport. And I just stuck with it and, and suddenly found myself in with all these oddball characters, you know, like skating really attracted people who were willing to try something different, who were willing to, who wanted to be set apart from the status quo. And I loved it, you know, and they were all like artsy, kind of strange, but, but really um, creative. What sort of subcultures do you see now that are as skating was back in 79, 80? Do you see something starting now where you're like, ah, this is kind of like how skating started. Let's see where this goes. Um, in terms of an activity? Yeah, it doesn't have to be a sport or anything, but do you see anything like, I mean, it could be yoga for all I care, but that's too mainstream now. Do you see anything that started off sort of niche with a bunch of oddballs that you're thinking, ah, that's kind of what we looked like back in 79, skateboarding in someone's pool before the cops came? Yeah, I, my best um, my best example is my my 17-year-old son is really into electronic music, but, but a, a certain, a very certain type of electronic music and it's almost, I call it Nintendo rave music for lack of a better term. <laughs> and he, he goes to these shows and he actually performs, he, he performs and he has this following and there is something there that is really unique. You know, all these people have sort of found each other and I feel like they're, they feel like outcasts in the world of electronic music even. And I'm, I watched, I've kind of watched it blossom. It's slow, but, but I, I feel that same I feel like they have that same connection with each other that we had as skaters where we're doing something totally different. We truly enjoy it and it's fun. Yeah, I mean, aside from the fact that you had so many injuries and so many hospital visits that your doctor pulled you aside and asked if your parents were abusing you. That just went with the territory. Yeah, you guys were getting beat. For for guys who considered yourselves nerds and outcasts, you were, you were pretty tough, it seems like. That is the defining moment of if you want to do this seriously or continue to do it is the moment you get hurt, you know, is that, do you love it so much that you're going to push through this and and learn from your mistake? Or is that, is that the sign that you have to stop because you don't like getting hurt from the very beginning? Like one of my worst injuries in the beginning was, um, I got a concussion. I knocked my teeth out and I knew when I woke up, (laughs) literally when I woke up in the pro shop of the skate park that I wanted to get back out there and do it. And, and it wasn't going to stop me, even though, you know, I had this extremely tragic injury for the most part. Yeah, that's that's not something I know. I, I know that the second I knock my teeth out doing anything it, it is probably the day that I that I stopped doing that activity. But I, I definitely understand the compulsion to to become obsessed with something like this and just make become great with it. And as I was talking to a lot of my friends, I was stoked about this interview, of course, and I said, hey, I got Tony Hawk coming on. Isn't that cool? And, you know, do you have any questions for somebody like that? And, and they uh, overwhelming number of, of parents especially said, oh, yeah, you know, my kids were doing that for a second, but they don't like doing it because they keep falling. And I thought this is exactly what Tony's talking about 
when he says, are you gonna push through it? Because the people who get really good at anything, skating or otherwise, are the people that do slam and then come back from it and say, yeah, you know, a sensible person probably wouldn't keep doing this to themselves, but I'm just, I'm too into it, I can't quit now. Definitely there's there's a happy medium too. There are plenty of people that enjoy skating that don't wanna push it too far, don't wanna risk themselves, but still enjoy doing it. So nowadays, especially, there's a stronger foundation of, of people participating because of that. But in our day, you know, that, that was it. It was like, you're definitely going to get hurt learning to do this. And are you willing to push through that and, and keep going and, and risk, risk your body? And, and the ones that, I mean, obviously some people get away with less injuries. I was, uh, had a string of pretty bad injuries through my years but they would come in waves, you know, when it rains, it pours. Um, I think I had two knee surgeries over the course of a year and a half. No, I was going to say, I remember when I broke my leg skating and uh, I was laid up. It was like I was in the middle years of high school. There weren't that many skaters around. But as soon as I was laid up, all my skater friends kept bringing me all the latest trans worlds and thrashers and uh, an, occasion, an occasional playboy to get through the day. <laughs> yeah. And all I could think about, though, was I cannot wait to get back out there. I want to get back on my board. I had no thoughts whatsoever that... You know, this was like, oh, I got hurt. I can't do it anymore. The first thing I wanted to do as soon as I was done was get back out on my board. Yeah. And especially when you when you do it on a professional level, that just comes with the territory. So, you know, it it sucks getting hurt. It sucks to see people get hurt. But we know that they're going to come back. Like, that's just a given. It's It was actually kind of tough to get you to do the interview because you're a busy guy and also because you control your brand very strictly. And I thought that was kind of interesting and obviously very very normal for somebody in your position, but I was entertained by this Fruit Loop story, which is kind of what got you controlling your brand. One of the one of the kickoffs for you getting controlling your brand very strictly. Can you <laughs> yeah. fill us in on that? I think that's hilarious. Uh, let's see. That was around I want to say ninety seven ish. Um, you know, the X Games were just sort of coming on the scene, and Fruit Loops wanted to do what what they considered an extreme promotion you know with with some of the x games stars and so they brought me they brought matt hoffman johnny mosley i think of uh, maybe a rollerblader at the time to new york and they wanted us to do this press event i had never been part of a press event before so i didn't really know what to expect and we had like media training the night before and you know our talking points and what we do on interviews and and basically what they were doing was they were going to have us do a, a, a skate BMX skate exhibition and then do interviews with um, media outlets. But but the interviews are supposed to be talking about Toucan Sam as if he's a real person <laughs> and that he's into our sports now. Oh, my gosh. Um, or a real whatever, real and a real entity, a real Toucan. And at the time. I didn't know any better, you know, and I was like, well, that's weird. Would you really do that? And they're like, well, yeah, you know, that's, that's the idea is that Toucan Sam is really, he's, he's hip now. He's, he's into your guys' sports. And, and we wore these Fruit Loops shirts and they bust in all these, uh, these school kids to like be the cheering section. And it all just felt so forced to me, you know, where, where there could be an easy way to connect Fruit Loops to, you know, let's say our sports in a much more, and I hate to use the word organic, but in a much more natural way, right? Than they were doing, where you know we're, we're we're like pimping Toucan Sam as the next superhero of our sports, and the, and it just felt cheesy. And and at some point, I was like, "What am I doing here? 
You know, this is so strange. But luckily, the people that they chose to do it with me were were hilarious. And so we kind of made it our own funny, ridiculous event. I mean, Johnny Mosley was announcing the Vert exhibition and naming tricks as cereals. Oops. Because he didn't know what the skate tricks were. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then he got scolded because he was using other cereal brand names. <laughs> right. So it's like Tony Hawk with the grape nut, but then not really remembering, hey, this is supposed to be Fruit Loop centric. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, yeah, that was like, like, that's a lucky charm twist. So, you know, we made it fun, but but there did feel I was like, I don't want to do things like this, you know, even though the money was was ridiculous. Like it was more money than I got paid for any promotion in my whole life. And uh, around that same time, I got an agent and uh, and explained that situation to him. And, and he had already he was he was an agent to a, a, a couple of their pretty big TV stars. And he said, oh, yeah, no, don't worry. He said um, we're, that we're going to put an end to all that stuff. And, and you're going to have control over these promotions and, and, and how how you're presented. Because I, I would literally have this conversation like, you know, there was it was a, a lot of humiliation for a lot of money, but it wasn't worth my integrity. Right. And long term, like if you were doing stuff like that now, you're you'd be a, your company would be a joke. Uh, but at the same time, because I fought for that control and because I had such a good um, track record going forward from there, people do trust our instincts with how marketing goes, you know, like in those days and even even for a few years after that, you know, a big company was not going to hear that you didn't like their marketing because they went to college for that and they did target groups, you know, focus groups, and they, they know what they're talking about. And I'm like, but this is not skateboarding. This is not how skateboarding should be portrayed. It, it, it does us an injustice. You know, maybe it, maybe it does something for you and, and your resume, but, but this is not how you treat what we do with respect. And, uh, so I had fight a couple times with, with big agencies, um, over their, imagery and over their, their taglines and stuff. And, uh, it, it was a struggle, but, but like I said, I've, we've come through and shown that we can be successful and that we were a little more savvy to what the kids wanted. Even, I mean, this, this is an extreme lesson for you to learn as well. And, and you even had the toilet paper incident where was this before or after that, where you walked into the office of some schmuck who was printing your, your name and brand on some just terrible piece of gear. And there was a roll of toilet paper that said something like Tony Hawk brand. That was the first go around for me. That was actually in the eighties. So that, that, that came before. And in the eighties, I didn't have any business sense, you know, about what any of it meant, like endorsements, licensing and whatnot. And I was signing every offer that came across my desk because there was, there were guarantees and there were royalties. And I had no idea that the off, the, the contracts that I was signing were actually conflicted with one another <laughs> over what products oh, they could do. So I was already in breach of contract by signing them. And then I went to this company that was making what original, the original fingerboards were, you know, the, what became eventually like tech deck type of stuff, but these were like plastic. And I had signed away my name for them to do pretty much any accessory they wanted. And so they were making really cheesy Velcro wallets and, and the fingerboards and, and just tchotchkes that had no place in skateboarding. 
And I went in to, to try to talk to them. And, and, and the logos that they were coming up with were just straight ripoffs of other skate companies' logos, with my name in it. And I was like, you know, I, had, I went there and I, just to tell them off, basically like, you know, you can't do this. You can't take a Vision Streetwear logo and put my name in it and, and think that that's okay. And he's like, well, yeah, actually, we can. We, we have the rights to your name. And as he's talking, there's this roll of toilet paper behind him with my name on the outside of it. And I was like, what, what is that? And he said, oh, that's a joke because one of our retailers said, well, you know, you can put anything with Tony Hawk's name on it and it'll sell, even toilet paper. And so we made that for them. And I think at that moment, I realized that I was not a person to them. I wasn't someone to be respected. I was just a, a name, a brand, and for them to do whatever the hell they want to make as much money as they wanted. And, and I ended up paying to get out of my contract with them. And that was my first lesson in terms of keeping control of a brand. And so, you know, fast forward to 10 years later with the um, Fruit Loops thing. And then I realized like, oh, this is what happens when you're part of a big marketing campaign. So I think between those two is what are, are my big lessons in terms of how to keep your integrity, how to control your brand. And luckily, you know, I, I survived that wave in the 80s and there was no YouTube back then <laughs> to document every mistake. Yeah, although people are probably on eBay right now looking for some Tony Hawk toilet paper and Velcro <laughs> wallets. Yeah, well, luckily that was the one to wonder, but I did end up buying one of those watches somehow remained uh, that these guys made that were just, that had no quality control, just super cheesy, and I ended up buying it on eBay um, a couple years ago. Just just as a reminder of what, what not to do, what never again. Yeah, and take off market completely. Yeah, yeah, good call, right? Do I mean, do you have people going through and looking for unlicensed stuff and just getting or ancient stuff that looks bad and just snagging it? I used to, but it's it's a little easier now with trademarks and with and with social media. Like every, you know, something comes up and it just immediately comes comes to your attention. Right. Yeah, that's true. You can nip it in the bud. It doesn't yeah. end up with a massive distribution, and then you've got to find the the end product. You can. No, go to yeah, the source. It's very easy to sort through now. Yeah, Google alerts are your friend, I suppose. In this, in this case, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, and you're you're still skating and innovating. I mean, you've got the you did the nine hundred, which I know was in ninety nine, but I mean, most of your tricks now seem to be a little bit more technical and and maybe less dangerous, which uh, which probably makes sense given that you're. And, and I'm not trying to say that you're old, but I am, and I'm thirty six. <laughs> I wouldn't. I don't know if I'd want to be flying through the air. Oh yeah, no, I'm 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 old. I I fully accept that. Um, I uh, <laughs> Sorry. yeah, I've kind of learned to to refine my style to much more technical and low impact type of tricks, and that has allowed me to continue doing it at my age. I mean, that's it's it's not some great secret. Um, and you know, some of the stuff I'm doing is not that it it doesn't necessarily resonate across the industry as as what the next new hot trick is, but it gives me a sense of creativity. And there's something unique about it, you know, where people go, oh, no one has ever done that. And, and you know, to do NBDs and skateboarding is a pretty big deal. So the fact that I still get to get a few under my belt is pretty exciting. Yeah, it seems like you you have to constantly be innovating and pushing your own abilities. Otherwise, do you think you'd lose interest in it if you weren't progressing all the time? That's funny. I think I I've, I had this discussion with my wife just um, the other night and, and I was trying to figure out, like, if I don't feel like I'm continuing to progress, would I be so excited to keep skating? I, I probably would, but that's, for me, that's such a hard, it's hard to project that far down the line for me. Yeah, fair enough. 
but I see plenty of my peers that, you know, they're not necessarily doing anything new, but they still love it. And they're, they love getting to, getting to travel the world, getting to do it, you know, to a new audience, to, to more appreciation. And I feel like I probably would come to terms with that. Um, and I have in some ways, I mean, there are definitely some events I go to, like there's this bowl event in Sydney, Australia every year. I've been to the last three of them and my routines in that bowl are not necessarily getting any more progressive, but I really enjoy it. And I, I enjoy the, the crowd and the, and the, the whole experience is, you know, it's, it's kind of like a reunion every year. So I guess I'm, I am learning to accept that, but it's weird to just be playing the hits for me. <laughs> I guess, I guess yeah. that's the crossover, you know, it's like, it's like a band and, and maybe their new stuff isn't as popular or maybe they're not getting any new stuff at all, but they go out there and they play these songs that everyone knows and they, they still like it. What's one modern 2016 type trick you'd love to bring back in time if you could and pull off in the eighties just to blow people's minds. Do you have anything in mind? Oh, wow. That's a good question. I, I mean, anything switch would have been unheard of. Like, so I did a switch McTwist in 98. If that had happened in the eighties, no one, people just would not have understood anything because even our skateboards were not we're not ambidextrous. You know, I mean, our skateboards were meant to go one direction. There was no nose on the board. And so the idea that you're skating it backwards was incredible. The idea that you're actually skating it switch and doing these tricks as if your opposite stance would be just, it, it, it would be like you came from a time machine. That's right, because skateboards, when I was a kid, I, I forgot, they were kind of fish-shaped, right? Like 2D fish? They were. The there, was, back there, was a, little... there was definitely a nose and tail that were defined as such. And, and in the 80s, there was no nose. You know, there, no one had a, a, a purpose for that. So your nose was like three inches past the truck, and that was it. I forgot all about that, because we were cleaning out my buddy's garage probably last summer, and he had one of those, like, Nashua or whatever skateboards with, like, the grainy basically little crystals, blue crystals on the on, glued on it for grip yeah. and giant wheels. And it had, yeah, like a little fishtail and a little pointy nose, like a mini surfboard. And the thing was enormous. And I remember comparing it to a modern skateboard, it looked like a completely different animal. It was just unreal how bulky it was and everything. Yeah, and it's funny because those shapes are kind of coming back in fashion for a lot of the older generation. What would you have done if you weren't a skater? Do you ever think about that? Like, what would you have gotten into if, if skating didn't exist? Uh, well, I was always really interested in electronics and um, technology, and I learned to use a computer very early on. I learned how to do video editing on a video toaster, you know, like the, the, the first sort of consumer-level uh, nonlinear editing system. So I, I dabbled in that, and I obviously did it through with skating a lot. But at some point when my, when my income was, was drying up from just skating, I started to actually do freelance editing for companies. So there was a point in time around the early 90s where you were doing this, not making enough money. I know you just had a kid and you were eating a bunch of ramen all the time. <laughs> yes. And why did you keep going? Because at this point, it's looking pretty bleak. You're not waiting out, oh, skating's going to get popular again. It's just like, this is my life now. What am I going to do? Um, there was a little bit of that, but, but every once in a while, some opportunity would come up like as minimal as skating in a six flags parking lot, you know, for like a promotion they'll do for a week and 
getting a hundred bucks a day, uh, for like three exhibitions a day and that paid the bills, you know, and, and then allowed me to skate. It was, so it wasn't like, it wasn't like, Oh, I got to do this. It was like, Oh, cool. I get to, I get to skate and people are going to be there watching and I get paid. It, you know, it was for a 10th of what I usually would make, but, but it made it happen. Uh, you know, but there were a couple of times when those were not coming in as frequently and, uh, we were struggling. Like I'd started birdhouse skate brand. We were struggling with that. The sales weren't there. Um, and so there were a couple of times where I, I almost gave up on skating or the skate industry as a career. Um, but I never thought I'd quit skating. You know, I just didn't know if I'd be able to actually make a living out of it anymore. I adjusted my life accordingly. Like I, I moved into a smaller place, was saving my money. I was, like you said, eating a lot of Top Ramen and Taco Bell and peanut butter and honey sandwiches at the time, but, and, and had just had my first child and, and, uh, you know, it was definitely a challenge, but I was willing to do whatever it took to continue to skate. When you were 16, you were making more money than your high school teachers. And then, of course, the skating industry slipped into that coma. The ESPN X Games popped you right out of it. And it seems like your love for the game, your love for skating, is what enabled you to be ahead of everyone else when the world was ready and threw, threw gasoline on the fire through the X Games, right? It seems like this is something that you had been practicing the whole time because you loved it so much. And that's why you were ready for action when when the spotlight was on you. Yeah, I think so. I mean, especially when those first X Games came, they wanted to do Vert as an event, and Vert was mostly, I don't want to say it was dead, but it was it was not the, the chosen style of skating at the time. And the Vert skaters that were the ones that were who were progressive, especially in the late 80s, early 90s, weren't really skating that much, mostly because they didn't have the facilities, but also because there was just no living to be made in it. And I never had quit. Luckily, you know, I lived in Southern California, so there were some vert ramps around here to practice. And that was still my my forte. That was still my uh, my strengths. And so when the X Games came, I guess I was ahead of the game in, in the sense that I had never quit. And, uh, you know, I still had my skill set. I was still learning new things. And it was kind of like, and also I had the, I had the advantage of having a name that people already knew. I mean, not that that not that that had anything to do with my success as a competitor, but definitely my success as a um, a recognizable name that people would tune in for. You've got a lot of great business takeaways from this, uh, from your experiences as well. I mean, never get cocky because good luck turns bad fast was something I saw in in the early part of the book, and taking pride in being obsessive and putting in the time to get great is what, in my estimation, at least from the history here, is what was what made you ready for the limelight. And you take a lot of care in explaining that once you've achieved proficiency, you have to take your specialty to a new level that fellow specialists can actually appreciate, and you continue to innovate from there, and that's what sets you apart. And it sounds like, it sounds like a long way of saying, be so good they can't ignore you. That, and, and as well as go outside your comfort zone, learn everything about your craft. I mean, that for me, skating, you know, I grew up skating in, in swimming pools and then eventually on vert ramps. But at some point I realized my skating would probably be better and more well-rounded if I do break out of this and go learn some of these street moves and some of these kickflip moves and things like that. And, 
And, you know, that was not something that was considered necessary for the type of skating I did. Um, and then eventually I learned that in business, like I, I wanted to start this business. I had to jump into how to do purchase orders, what to, you know, how to forecast what's a POP, like it, net and, and gross profit and all that stuff I could have ignored because I did have people that were qualified to do that stuff, but I dove in cause I knew that based on my previous success that, that it was only going to benefit me in the end. And, and, uh, I think that for me was the secret. I mean, obs being obsessive, but being obsessive about the entire entity of, of, or, or industry of what you're doing. How do you balance that? You mentioned in the book, the more you make it in the corporate world, the more you need to prioritize spending time on the street. How did you learn that lesson and how do you balance that now? I, I walk the walk. I, I go skate. <laughs> I mean, that that's my best, that, that's my best explanation is that I'm still out there skating. I'm watching the events. I'm, I'm hanging out with, with, you know, with the kids, with the ones that are, that are considered the, the contemporaries now. And, um, and as long as I have my, you know, I do it because I love it, but as long as I have my finger on the pulse of, of what is happening out there, I can at least adjust my, my products and my career to, to fit into that or, or, or to be, to evolve with that, not to fit into it, but really to, to be progressive as well. Cause I don't want to get stuck in a rut. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all gonna give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, 
Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. There's a lot of hustle and grind, especially throughout the books. And it's really easy, I think, for outsiders to just kind of assume you caught lightning in a bottle because skating was trendy and you were in the right place at the right time. And you admit in, a little bit in the book, look, there's a little bit of luck. ESPN revived the brand, skyrocketed it. But what if that didn't happen? What was the plan? And do you think that entrepreneurs and business people should hope for something like this? You know, what advice do you have to prepare people for something like this or, or a lack of something like the X Games really launching them up into fame and fortune, so to speak? Well, I think that definitely following your dreams and following your passion and continuing to do that as, as long as you can, you know, it, and it, sometimes it is a struggle. And for sure, there were there were moments when we started Birdhouse that we were about to give up. You know, it went like we anticipated skateboarding coming back into fashion on some level but it took a few years longer than we anticipated. And there were a couple of times where we're like, maybe this isn't, you know, maybe this isn't, isn't going to work. But, but I also believe that if you're just scraping by doing what you love, you're going to be infinitely happier than wild success doing something that you feel like you're selling yourself out for that you're, that you've lost your integrity for. Um, because I still love going to work every day. I loved going to work back then, you know, even though it wasn't really paying that well, but, but at some point you have to, you have to live in the real world and, and can you afford to live there with your passion? Maybe not. Maybe there's a way to, uh, alter that, that approach. Maybe there's a way to start working with someone else that's doing it, that you appreciate or that you respect. But yeah, I mean, at some point you can't just have some money drain. Right, yeah, because it's it's a lot of folks come on and say, look, it's important to follow your passion, but a lot of the same people are also having kind of a hindsight bias, right? It's like it worked for you because you worked really hard and everything came together, but there's a lot of people who follow their passion right into their parents' basement, right? So you, you have to really be prepared to ask yourself, am I willing to do this even for a non-living wage or just barely a living wage? If so, continue to do it, you'll you'll experience that happiness that you'd mentioned before. But if not, it, it might just have to be a hobby and that's okay too. Or you might have to be the video guy for somebody who's doing what you eventually want to do. And you have to be cool with that. Yeah. And that's, and that's the compromise you have to decide for yourself, you know, and how far are you willing to take that? And for sure that that's a perfect example. Like, yeah, maybe I'm the video guy that covers this, this industry or this action, but it keeps you in it. And maybe that's good enough. Like I said, when I was when I was skating in the mid '90s and and barely getting by, 
I still loved what I did. So I, I considered it a success regardless of not being able to you know, get a new car or um, any other sort of luxuries. But it was it was something that I looked forward to every day, something to look forward to doing. And, and I don't think people, everyone can say that about their job. I know that you're super concerned with authenticity. In the video game and the print ads and things like that, there was one example we had some print ads and the models were holding skateboards, but they were holding it in a way you could just tell, like these people have never held a skateboard right. before. And you're cringing and you're thinking, nobody's gonna notice, and the photographer and the media company saying, look, nobody's gonna notice, we don't even see the problem. But you knew that any skater would immediately go, these people are fake, they don't really do it. Why is this something that's so important to you? Well, obviously because I, I want it to be authentic, because I want to represent skateboarding the best I can. I mean, you know, beyond, wanting to be successful or, or to have successful products or things that people enjoy. I do want to, to represent skateboarding in a way that, that people would be proud of it, who are in the industry, um, who've grown up with it, you know, like it's such a, it's my, it's been my identity for so long and, and I wouldn't want to exploit it in a way that makes it any less important. And so when I get to do big promotions, especially when I was doing big promotions, like on the, on the heels of our video game success, I made sure that the, the skateboarding that was shown was authentic, that the lingo was, was authentic, that, you know, that it really spoke to hardcore skaters. And, but, but on a bigger level that I was using these marketing dollars of people like Frito-Lay and McDonald's to promote skateboarding to a bigger audience. That was the more lofty goal of all of that stuff, was that I get to use these huge marketing dollars campaigns to show skateboarding to an audience that's never seen it and in a way that represents it well. Obviously, you care deeply about it because you've always had a lot of skin in the game at all times. For example, you invested a lot of your royalty checks back into your own business. You invested into Huck Jam, Boom Boom Huck Jam type stuff uh, with your own money. And you've, so you've had a lot of skin in the game and you're not afraid to, both in skating and in business, take a slam if you wanna progress. And do you think you learned that through skating or do you think you always kind of had that hit, fall, get up again before that? Do you think that something has developed through skating and is now present in your business or am I reading into it too much? Uh, no, for sure that that was developed first in my skating and, and, and just the idea of, of taking risks for the sake of progression, that, that is exactly in tune with my business ethics. You know, like we got to, someone's got to do it. Someone's got to do it first. Let's, let's try it. And it doesn't always work. And luckily I've, you know, had enough successes that, that I was allowed those failures, but, but definitely in a case like what you said, the boom, boom, hot jam, you know, the idea was that we would do a tour where our sports, skateboarding, BMX and motocross are the, the entertainment, not the sideshow to a bigger event. You know, that's how, always how we did our exhibitions. It was like, oh, we're the halftime show for the football game. We're in the parking lot of the big concert going on inside. And I was like, I think our sports have enough recognition now and enough appreciation that we could be the center of a of an arena tour. And I drew up a, a ramp system that filled an arena floor and started looking for any kind of help. And people were just dumbfounded. They're just like, this is, you're crazy, you know? And so I eventually wrote a check for the ramps and just set it in motion. 
And once we got something that was more viable, you know, once we had the ramps in place, once we had the crew, we started picking up sponsors and, and we got the whole thing underwritten, but it took that, it, it took that leap of faith. Um, and, uh, I was willing to risk, you know, literally millions of dollars because I believed in it. And you have a lot of huge successes. I mean, first of all, the video games, there's like 80 of them now, right? <laughs> Across various platforms. I don't know. Do, I, you, do you know something I don't? I don't know. I feel like I looked it up and there was just a bunch of different results. And some of them sure are like, hey, here's the mobile version of this. And here's the, yeah, you know, there's a bunch of different versions and, and international versions and stuff like that, I think are probably counted in that total. But there, how do you deal when things don't work out? I mean, you have, for example, Skate Jam, if that sounds like it rhymes with Space Jam, you know what I'm talking about here, right? The, the Space Jam back in action, which was supposed to be the skateboard version of Space Jam with you instead of Michael Jordan, right. went all the way up, you're taking meetings, you're, you're, everyone's laughing and basically popping over champagne, you hop on a flight to Australia, never heard from anybody again. Yeah. How do you deal with the, the disappointment or, or slash rejection of projects just not following through or, or bombing? It seems like th that those take out a lot of people. A lot of people don't come back from that stuff. Well, I think that I I, I had so many experiences like that early on of, of big promises that I learned to take every claim like that with a grain of salt. You know, I just I just learned like, oh, well, yeah, maybe something like that will happen, but I'm not going to count on it because it was too hard. I mean especially in the, in the lean days when things would come up like, Oh, you might, you might be in this commercial as an extra or, you know, as a stunt double. And if I relied on that and it didn't come through, I was crushed or I'd spend the money before I got it. And so I just learned like, if it comes, it comes, but I'm not going to count on that stuff. And so in the case of, uh, wait, what were you talking about? Sorry. Uh, space jam, skate jam. Oh, space jam. Yeah. So, so this, you know, this was a super exciting prospect. I was meeting with Warner Brothers. We were, we were going, we had a handshake deal. You know, they, they had offered me money and we were going to bring back the, the Looney Tunes characters in the form of, of a skate movie like, like Space Jam. And that was amazing. But at the same time, I just had too much experience with Hollywood and with other disappointments where I was like, I just, you know, I'm not going to believe this until we're actually on a set shooting this. And like you said, I, I, they, they met me, they were so excited about the project and so excited to get it going. They met me at LAX restaurant when I was flying to Australia for a week to shoot a movie, a, a different movie. And it was all happening. And, you know, we were going to put the whole deal together when I got back from the, from the time that I left till the time I got back, they had premiered the movie, um, with Brendan Fraser, uh, what's it called? Back in action. Aha. Uh -huh. And that flopped so hard that they said, we're not doing Looney Tunes stuff. And that was it. Jeez. So then that was it. And and it's just like, all right, I didn't, I didn't cash any checks. I didn't have it. Well, it, they didn't say that. Like, that's just what my agent figured out later. Cause I kept asking like, what is going on? Oh, they're supposed to get back to me. They're supposed to get back to me. And they finally said, I think that they, on the heels of the, of the flop that was this movie, they're not going to do anything with Looney Tunes. Friggin' have you ever confronted Brendan Fraser? Thanks for ruining <laughs> yeah, my franchise, bro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can't really yell at Bugs Bunny. Uh, 
<laughs> All right. Well, one thing I thought that that was really funny in the book is you're walking. You did a. I think it was was this Kids Choice Awards or something. You're walking by all these A list celebrities in the front row. Maybe it wasn't Kids Choice. Maybe it's something more serious. It's like Puffy, Jay Z. Oh, and you're yeah, still MTV, wearing your helmet. Yeah, MTV Awards. Yeah, and and then you you felt a little bit self conscious. You even noted that in the book. I mean, do you can were you self conscious? Do you consider yourself? What what list do you think you're on? If they're a list, what list do you think you're on well, when it comes to I, these ca- kind of guys? So, but to put it in context, I remember what you're talking about now. What happens was what happened was we did a MTV Awards show, and uh, our video game was up for a soundtrack award, and they wanted to do something surprising with for the crowd, and they brought out like they turned the stage into a skate park, basically, like all at once, you know, where you had no idea this was coming. And then we all started skating and there were these obviously huge stars in the crowd and I had my helmet on and, but I was dressed for the, for the event. And so I did this whole thing and then I went up and presented an award and totally forgot to take my helmet off. And then I'm walking by all these huge stars like Jay-Z and like giving them thumbs up and he gave me this funny look and I realized like, oh, geez, I'm wearing my helmet. Like, (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, that's that's when I felt self-conscious. So I was like, I looked so ridiculous walking through the crowd in the suit and in my helmet. Like I, I could have just taken it off, you know, way ab- just after we did the skating. But I forgot I was too nervous. Right. Um, so they're thinking like interesting fashion choice, a suit and and the skate. Yeah, helmet. I just felt dorky. That's all. That's that, that was. <laughs> but but on full display of like the the, the yes, the A-listers of the time. I don't really consider myself on any list. I mean, I'm. I can't believe people still recognize me. I can't believe that I get recognized for skating because that was never something that was that was a goal. And that was never something that was an option when I was younger. Like the most famous skaters when I started skating w- were only known to a very small group of skateboarders. You know, they were not, they were only like they were in the skate magazines. They were definitely not on TV. They weren't, you know, they, they weren't considered sports stars. So I, I still feel strange that I get recognized. I mean, it's amazing. Like I get, I get incredible opportunities. I get, you know, I, I get VIP, whatever passes seating and stuff. I get to do some really rare things with my kids that the most people would never get to experience. Um, but I'm always thankful for it. I never expected it. And I don't know what list that puts me on, but you know, I, I don't get invited to the Academy Awards. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. But you know, it's. I'll tell you. I took a a long time ago. Well, I don't know, a year ago or so. You and I were at the same event, speaking at the same event. I took a photo with you after you had done a talk near at this like house outside where there was a fire a pool and a fire pit. That's all I remember. And I I posted it on Facebook from my phone, and the caption didn't come through. And I noticed it, and I thought, oh, I'll fix that later. No one's going to comment on it because it just looks like me. And, you know, some friend of mine hanging out. And when I came back and checked the photo later that night, there were dozens of comments like, holy shit, that's Tony Hawk. How'd you meet Tony Hawk? So I don't know what list you're on, but tons of people recognize you immediately <laughs> cool. in a photo with me that that people that I didn't even that I don't think ever owned a skateboard, at least now for the last couple decades, every single one who commented was enthralled. It wasn't just, oh yeah, that's that Tony Hawk guy. It was, what? Where did you meet Tony Hawk? So you still got that. You oh, still that's got pretty it. cool. Well, thank that's you. for sure. Yeah, I, don't, I guess I just don't want to, I don't want to um, think that I have 
more whatever recognition than I do. And, and like I said, I'm still, I, I, I don't take it for granted at all. You know, I don't expect people to recognize me. And the weird thing is, is that it happens more now than almost ever. And I have no explanation for that. Cause you know, it's not like our video game series is still on top and I'm not doing big marketing campaigns so much anymore, but, um, but it's amazing. When you fly, do you take the skateboard with you on the plane or do you check it? Uh, I usually take it with me and it's funny cause people think that's like me, you know, trying to <laughs> try like being pretentious and like, Hey, here I am. Here's my skateboard. I usually take it with me because I'm just, if, if I can do it without almost any of my bags that I check in except my skateboard. <laughs> right. Might be tricky to go and buy a new skateboard and do a demo at whatever hour of the day it is that you arrive. Yeah. And, and we don't like my board is very specialized. We don't make that shape. I have size 13 feet. So it's very important that it arrives with me. That being said, when you fly to certain cities in Europe, you cannot put the skateboard in the overhead bin. Because it won't fit or they won't let you? No, it's just their, their policy. So I'm well versed in which airports I can fly through with a skateboard and which I can't. That's funny. And people must look at you like, who is this guy trying to be relevant, you know, with his skateboard? Who is this guy? Or sometimes they just think it's me being, you know, that that it's it's <laughs> that I'm being pretentious with it. That it's like, check me out, here I am, here's my skateboard. It'd be like, right. you know, some famous guitarist walking through with his guitar strapped around his <laughs> around his neck. Right. Like, oh, they won't recognize me unless I have my skateboard. Let me let me put some stickers on it. Yeah, exactly. Tell us a little bit about the foundation and why it's important. Uh well the foundation, uh, we started about well, I started fourteen years ago and it was my way of of giving back, obviously, to the the industry and the community that have given me so much. But um, for me, it was a reaction that, to a number of skate parks that were being built at the time. This is around 2001, 2002. And they were mostly in affluent areas. And they were mostly being built by city councils that were just doing it to congratulate themselves for being so cool that they would build a skate park. But in the reality of it was that they would hire the the lowest bidding contractor for the job, which was usually someone that just poured concrete for sidewalks. And they were not consulting the skaters of the community, and they would just go ahead and full steam ahead with, with no consultation of, of people that were experts in the field. And then they'd build these parks that were terrible. You know, they were poorly designed. They weren't, there was no flow. There was, there would be like a set of stairs that met a wall. and I saw, I went to a couple of these grand openings cause I was invited to go and, and I would, I would complain. I would say, you know, this park is terrible. And they would say, well, that's what, that's what the kids were saying. But we said, wait till Tony Hawk gets here and shows you how to ride it. And I think at that moment, I realized that, that there's this disconnect between the kids who, who need these facilities who want these facilities and the entities that are providing them. But more than that, these facilities and this funding should be going to much more needy areas, much more low income, you know, challenged areas where the kids don't have many outlets for, for activities. And so I, uh, I decided I want to do something about that and bridge that gap between the kids who need these facilities and the people who are providing them, hopefully provide funding, but mostly provide resources on how to get it done and how to communicate clearly with the kids that want these parks. So the seed money for the foundation was 
came from me being on the celebrity edition of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And uh, we got to $125,000, or I got to $125,000 with the help of my brother as a lifeline. <laughs> and that was <laughs> seed money for the Tony Hawk Foundation. Is he a specific, is he an especially smart guy, I assume, or is he just really good at Google? He, uh, he's a writer, he's an editor, and he has a literature degree. And the, the quote was about Hemingway. Um, so I called him up and he didn't answer it, uh, immediately. And I got nervous and I could hear him typing. And so he was doing a Google search and this is 2002. So you got to realize that that was not the usual of how these things go. And so I started panicking because I could hear him typing and he immediately said the answer and he had got it through a Google search. I think that might've been the first time that, that he and I both realized how truly effective <laughs> Google could be. Nice, yeah, of course. Luckily, he got it right. That would just be horrendous, right, if you, <laughs> you blew that for charity and on national TV. And you guys have done a phenomenal job. It looks like, uh, at least the stats that I got, which might not be up to the minute, but 572 skate park projects in the U.S. have received funding from the Tony Hawk Foundation, five and a half million awarded to help create public skate parks, 400 worldwide projects with training and different foundation, and that's in 2015. And it just seems like there's, and there are millions, by the way, of people using these every year. They're not just sitting kind of idle. And it's it's a huge accomplishment and a huge piece of legacy. Do you think about that when you create these things? Like, what am I going to leave behind other than some really awesome videos and some video games? I mean, <laughs> is this part of your legacy that's important to you? I, I have never been so concerned with that aspect of things. I mean, I, I am hugely proud of of what I've, help to accomplish and create in skateboarding. Um, but I, I've never been one to be like, I need this on my gravestone. And you know, I, I'm, I'm just stoked to see skating grow and, and to have been a participant in that or, or to have been some catalyst in that is, is, is rewarding enough for me. One of our show fans, Tony asks, is there anything you would have liked to accomplish professionally that you have not? I professionally that that's, that's kind of a, uh, broad term. I think that. I would have liked to have taken the Boom Boom Huck Jam concept uh, internationally on tour. You know, I, I think that that could have done really well in places like Europe, um, in Australia, and even Japan. But it was so, our our stage setup was was so cumbersome, and it would have taken a big uh, sponsor and a big influx of cash to take it overseas. You know, we, 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 for anyone that knows what concert tours are, generally you have about four to five semis that carry all your gear. We had 14 semis carrying our gear. <laughs> and so to take that on the road in another country was a huge cost and, and a huge undertaking. And I never got to do it, but I would have loved to. How do you stay motivated to innovate and not kind of get caught up in the celebrity of everything? Like, how come you're you're a really grounded guy? You do a lot of community service, even meeting you in person, just totally normal conversation. I've also met a lot of other people, and that's not the case. Do you know why that is? I mean, are you actively working to stay like a normal person, for lack of a better word? <laughs> no, I think it, it's just it's come with having experienced the highs and lows already. I mean, I, I had a great bit of success in the eighties and I did, you know, I was young and, and I felt invincible then. So probably if you met me back then, I, I might've been a little bit more of a dick, <laughs> but having, 
had a sort of a, a downfall of success and learning that I truly do love this and I would never give it up, you know, through, through the sort of darker days. Um, and then having it come back in, in, a, in a way that I never imagined or dreamed. I mean, that's been incredible, but, but, but I never lost sight of what got me here. And that is the skating. And that is the, you know, being a, a genuine person. And so it's not an effort, but, but it's definitely just who I am now. And, uh, you know, it, it takes, it takes being knocked down to get there. I think, I mean, some people, it, you know, it's weird skateboarding. Now, some people get into it to be rich or famous. When I got into it, neither one of those things was even possible. Yeah, that was nothing. There was nothing on the horizon for that. No, right? it was like when you're learning a new trick. You mentioned this in Bones Brigade. Learning tricks from people who've done it already—that's easier. It Way sets up serious. everyone's beliefs that it could be done. But if nobody's done it, then it seems like it might be impossible. So for you, having done that with skating, like you kind of see, look, this is this is something you see that probably a lot with new folks, new entrants to the arena is they're looking at it like all right, skate, work hard, dot, 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 fame and fortune and video games. And that for you was never, this was uncharted territory. And so the, the idea that you could fail and just be normal Tony Hawk, a guy who used to skate, was always something that was maybe in the back of your mind. That was always a possibility. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, but also when when you see, you know, it's, it's they're very transparent. The people that get into it because they think it's their ticket to fame or fortune are the ones that lose their motivation quicker than anybody because once they get a taste of that, they think that's it and that they can just ride along, um, you know, cruise it for a while and, and you've got to keep challenging yourself. And I think that's the mark of a true champion of what uh, in any sport is someone who continues to challenge themselves regardless of how they've compared to everyone else. Tony, thank you so much, man. This has been amazing. Everybody who asked questions got their question in. I really, really appreciate your time, and we really appreciate everything you've done for the sport and, of course, uh, for the Tony Hawk Foundation. Well, thanks for having me and listening to my stories. Really good stuff. You know, it's funny because uh, I, I was never really into skating. Jason, obviously you were. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> like I said, I met... Uh, Tony Hawk when I was uh, maybe 14 at Mount Trashmore. But before that, I was a fan. I, I can't remember a time in my life when I was not a fan of skateboarding and the Bones Brigade. I mean, that's just cr it's crazy. I remember it always existed. And I remember a lot of kids around me did it. And a lot of people stuck with it, even through the the 80s, 90s, everything. And uh, it was always, always something around us. And there was always some skating stuff going around. But I was never look, I'm too much of a, a weenie to be into something like that. It just wasn't my thing. You, you don't have to say weenie. Look, me and my 45-year-old friends, we go out every Sunday. We have slappy Sundays. The the Us old guys bring the kids out. We teach them how to skate. You can still skate as an old man, and you're not an old man, so you still have time to get on the board and give it a shot. Right, yeah, okay. Yeah, might need might need a couple lessons. Maybe we'll ask Tony to to show us how to stay on that thing. If you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank Tony on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well as the other resources mentioned on the show, including some videos and a couple of books written by Tony as well. And you can tap our album art in most mobile podcast players to see the show notes for this episode. And we link to the show notes right on your phone. Bootcamp details for our live programs, bootcamp.theartofcharm.com. That's where you'll learn everything that we teach here at The Art of Charm. 
nonverbal communication, negotiation, mentorship, persuasion, influence, all that stuff. And remember, we're sold out a few months in advance. So if you're thinking about it a little bit, you should get in touch ASAP, get some info from us so you can plan ahead. And also, I want to encourage you to join the AOC challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge. You can text charmed to 33444. That's C-H-A-R-M-E-D to 33444. The challenge is about improving your networking and connection skills and inspiring those around you to develop a personal and professional relationship with you. We'll also email you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier on the show, and I've got regular videos with drills and exercises to help you move forward every single week. It'll make you a better networker, a better connector, and a better thinker. That's theartofcharm.com slash challenge, or text charmed in the U.S. to 33444. For the full show notes for this and all previous episodes of The Art of Charm, head over to theartofcharm.com slash podcast. This episode of The Art of Charm was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead and tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. So stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and more at theartofcharmpodcast.com.